Welcome to season two of the Connect FCS Ed podcast. Each episode is geared towards recruiting, supporting, and retaining past, current, and future professional family and consumer sciences educators. I am your host, Barbara Scully, and I want to boldly celebrate families and careers with you. Hi, and welcome back to the Connect FCS Ed. Today, I am so excited to have with me new, or I should say second year, FCS teacher, Rachel Grabrowski, and she's from the state of Ohio. She has something unique to offer all of us, and something that I'm really excited and also passionate about uh, is special education. She has that background of special education for the last seven years, but within seven years of being a teacher in who has now turned to FCS, but she will always be a passionate advocate for special education students. So today we're going to be talking about special education, what it means to teaching a diverse student population. So welcome, Rachel. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Barb, for having me. I really, really appreciate you having me on and giving me the opportunity to share a little bit of my story. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your story. Okay, awesome. So I am going into my seventh year of teaching, and I started off as an intervention specialist, mild moderate, which means I was in the inclusion setting. So, you know, your inclusion teacher going into the gen ed classes, collaborating with the gen ed teacher. So those are the students that are given the opportunity to be with their typical peers in the educational setting. So I did that for five years at the middle school and high school level. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And an opportunity came in front of me to transition into family and consumer sciences. I really wanted to like bridge this gap between intervention specialists and gen ed teachers and still be able to advocate for my students. So I took a leap uh, with the support of my principal, my administrator, he's awesome. So I jumped into family and consumer sciences. Last year was my first year of teaching during COVID. So that was very interesting to say the least. And now I'm going into my second year and I'm really excited, have new things under my belt going into hopefully a semi-normal year, right? I don't know, hopefully as things get better, but then get worse, confusing times for all of us. But yeah, I just, it's been a really interesting seven years, but I've got to work with those students that are, you know, a little bit older and uh, easy to connect with. And now I get to, like I said, bridge this gap between gen ed and special ed and really be an advocate for our students in the gen ed classroom. And I still get to work with our uh, students that have the higher functioning needs that are in a resource room setting. So typically they're in their own classroom throughout the day with their uh, special education peers. And then a of course, sometimes they do go out into some of our gen ed classes, our electives, because they still need electives at the high school level. So we get to see them in our classrooms too. And I get to work with all different ability levels, uh, like so many family and consumer science teachers do. So it's been a journey and I love it. No, I I love this and I'm so glad that we're able to connect. And I just have to give a special shout out to Anna Hall who made this possible. So yes. thank you. You're awesome. No, so let's break it down just a little bit. What is an inclusion student? What does that mean? Yeah, so our inclusion students are those that are identified as needing, um, you know, special education services, and they are going into the general, general pot. So they are getting majority of their day 
is spent in the gen ed classroom. So they still have special ed services. They could be pool out. That looks different, you know, throughout all of the United States of if they're doing pool out or we have something called the learning center where we have two intervention specialists that are really highlighting on those specific area of needs and trying to close those learning gaps. So like I said, for for most of the day, they are in their general education classes with their non-disabled peers. So those might be your students with, you know, ADHD or learning disabilities, maybe lower like uh, autism, but on the lower side of the spectrum um, where they can function pretty well in a gen ed classroom without as much um, intervention and support. So that's what an inclusion student looks like versus a resource student who might be more high functioning in different areas. Again, that could be autism, that could be intellectual disabilities, Down syndrome, where they really need support, or maybe uh, paraprofessionals are also in those classrooms, could be nonverbal students. So they're really with that population throughout the day. And of course, they still go out in those gen ed classrooms, but majority of their instruction for resource room is in that resource classroom, just with the intervention specialist and their paras versus what I did inclusion, mostly working in the gen ed classes. No, that's great because I know myself only being a teacher for the last five years, but I also have that paraprofessional background as well, because I I walked into the classroom and I did one-on-ones with students and pulling them out into the hallway and doing reading type stuff. But that was at the elementary level. Now we're going into when I first became an FCS teacher my first year, I had... Oh my gosh, the overwhelming amount of IEPs, those individual, what are they called? Individualized education plans, sometimes called programs instead of plans, but IEP, yes. Yes, our IEPs, and oh my goodness, I... And I had no idea. So I'm constantly getting all of these, you know, calendar invites to go to, you know, Susie Q or Joe's IEP meeting. And it says, you know, needing a a gen ed teacher. And I'm going, why is it just me? How come Mm -hmm. the math teacher, how come, you know, social studies, all these other teachers, how come I'm always getting inundated with them? I don't know. Maybe you have a different, uh, different lens on that. So why is it that FCS teachers or electives, it seems like we get picked on? So I, from my personal experience, you must be awesome, Barb. Because as an intervention specialist, I'm pulling those teachers that I know are going to show up and that are involved in the kids that are strong and really are going to be able to provide valuable input um, to the team because that is the whole process of having an IEP. It is a team uh, collaborative document and plan that goes out. And that's between parents or guardians, the student themselves, especially at our level at the middle school and high school level where we're teaching them independence, which is what we do as family and consumer science teachers. Uh, interesting enough, I guess, once you get to that high school level or above at age 14, there is a section, section five of the IEP that focuses on transitions and future planning. And what do we do as family and consumer science teachers, right? So that's where you're touching on those um, independent living skills and helping them explore what is life going to be like after college. A lot of the students that we see, especially those ones from the resource room, they're not necessarily going to go to a college or university. They're working on independent skills. You know, they can go in and be in the school until they're age 21, until they age out. And they really 
need like how to properly wash your hands or sanitize a counter, work the stove without setting the place on fire, functioning a microwave, watching their clothes, learning about child development and human development. So we are that piece of the IEP that is really going to be meaningful. And when a school system is trying to support a student in that area, and now with our new graduation pathways, which again, that's us, we as family and consumer science teachers are extremely valuable to the IEP team, to that student, and to being a support in the school where maybe academics isn't necessarily their strength. And we're going to figure out um, how we can best support these students as they transition transition from school to the real world and being functioning members of society. So we're the experts in that area, right? (laughs) Yeah, we are. Well, I love that. And thank you for just kind of sharing that because that was something that, that has never been broken down to me. Honestly, it's just like, well, all right, this is just how it is. And so status quo. So thank you for breaking that down and, and also highlighting or mentioning the fact that these students, they could stay within our care up until 21 years old. That is also something that is never openly discussed. Yeah. So in, in my classroom, I share the hallway with the special education students. So right across the hallway, I have the resource rooms and it's, it's a lot of fun, first of all, but also sometimes they get some runners and they always come over to my classroom. And, and I always just simply say to my students, you know, you guys always just be kind, you know, say hi, wave, or even pull out a chair for them to come sit down. Because when they are runners, <laughs> the paraprofessionals really appreciate when students, you know, pull out a chair and, and like, oh, okay. And then they divert their attention, they sit down and they're like, oh, we don't have to go running for this student. See, like I said, Barb, you, uh, you're just an amazing educator. That's why you keep getting asked to come to meetings. <laughs> I think that's so... we don't want to go to meetings. <laughs> oh, I feel you. I absolutely feel you. It's awesome to have general education teachers that can be so involved and be such a good support because it's hard as an intervention specialist. And I think that's why uh, one of the reasons why I've become so passionate in family and consumer sciences, uh, you know, it was a bitter, sweet transition. I love love special education and I'll never stop. But the beautiful thing about facts is that I still get to work with that population every single period, every single period. And I know and very much remember the struggles as an intervention specialist where there's these bridges that need to be made between the SPED teachers and the gen ed teachers because you have teachers uh, that are coming in as gen ed teachers that have been given that background in those special education classrooms while they were in college. A lot of our veteran teachers didn't have to take SPED focused classes. And, you know, so we've got this, we have our own diversity in teaching as far as experiences working with special ed. And there's so much that goes into special ed, legally, paperwork, minutes, everything else that all the responsibilities a gen ed teacher has. It's not realistic to expect them to know all of the things that they need to know of special education. So that relationship and that bridge between intervention specialists and gen ed teachers is so important, which is, again, one of the reasons why I love family and consumer sciences. So I can be that support to the special education teachers in my building because it's hard. You know, our intervention specialists have insane caseload numbers, workloads that are just 
completely unrealistic, but they're doing their best. And to meet the needs of our students, there's got to be that collaboration and those communication pieces between us to make sure that we give those students the best services that they deserve. Absolutely. What tools are you most excited to share with us from your learning, being your hands-on and, but you're an expert in this field where these are things that maybe we do automatically without thinking, but also at the same time, maybe these are areas that, you know, we struggle in with that scaffolding and modification. How, how can I best meet the needs of my student population? Well, thank you for that question. I've been dying for somebody to ask an intervention specialist that for five years. No, I'm again, very lucky in my district. As a staff, we are so like family oriented. We are just one giant family. So I work with some amazing professionals that have these open communications. And I think that is the number one answer to your question. There needs to be that consistent conversation and collaboration between gen ed teachers and intervention specialists. One of the most valuable things that um, we could do as educators is at the beginning of the year, you know, your intervention specialists typically give out like an IP at a glance or or some type of document. Every intervention specialist has something that looks a little different. That gives a snapshot to gen ed teachers of, hey, these are the 12 kids that are going to show up in your class throughout this first semester. Here's, you know, a little bit of information. Make sure you read and go through those students' IEPs because that's how, you know, it's not how you really get to know them, but it is how you get to know them as far as where they've come from academically and through their experiences in the school system and what goals are they working towards because that is the piece, especially for our inclusion students, right? They are supposed to be in the gen ed population, in the gen ed classroom, getting these services from the gen ed teacher. And oftentimes I have found that they're not getting that. They're still getting their services from the intervention specialist. And there's not really that strong collaboration between gen ed and special ed. Some cases there are. Like I said, I've had many great experiences. And as co-teaching models and stuff become more prevalent in education, some of those issues are resolving a little bit. But I think that is the number one thing for gen ed teachers and special education teachers to do is sit down and have conversation. Don't just hand a gen ed teacher a piece of paper and expect that they're going to read it and really understand the student. If there's something that needs to be communicated, let them know. Highlight a piece on the IEP that says, hey, this is how I can help this student um, like keep data on this goal, right? So oftentimes we might have students with behavior goals where they need to be paying attention for 10-minute time spans. That's hard for an intervention specialist to hop around classrooms and collect that data, but you know who can easily do that? Us, because we're in there. And you know, keeping a little clicker or tally on your desk while you're teaching is an easy thing that you can do. So to answer that question, that's really the first thing. Now, going into more of how we can help our students and what tools and, you know, am I excited about sharing with you guys? There's so much. So again, shout out to Anna Hall because she is the one that made the connection between the two of us. And she has been one of my number one supports as a family and consumer science teacher in Ohio. She has shared so many lessons and so many tools with me, and it they've just been so easy to follow and use in modify and differentiate. And of course, she's awesome. So a lot of hers are differentiated already. So one thing that I would really like to share is the importance of 
you know, modifying different assessments for your special ed population, giving the same test. And I'm not talking like if you do an AB version because you mix up the numbers, that's not a modified test, right? Modified means that you change it to meet that student, the student's needs and to measure what exactly are you hoping that they got and that they mastered from what you're teaching them, right? Because when we have resource room students in our classroom, we are not expecting them to be able to convert different, you know, uh, types of measurements, right? But being able to identify a measuring cup versus a dry measuring cup or what one cup versus a tablespoon looks like, that's more realistic for them. So making sure that you do that and again, collaborating with that uh, intervention specialist because that's going to help them. And I know from that being in that special ed, I would get these tests the day or the period that these students were supposed to take them. And I'm like, this is, this doesn't make any sense for this student. And the Jenna teacher was like, uh, just take out whatever questions or eliminate eliminate um, an option to make it three instead of four uh, choices to pick from. And that's, again, not a modified test. One thing that I got to do with COVID and using so much technology is I would Screencastify. If you don't know what Screencastify is, it's an app that you can download as an extension and uh, it records your screen as you're on it. And so I would pull up my assessment and I would read through all of the assessment to provide that read aloud. Because again, intervention specialists get inundated with like getting pulled from classes so that they could go read a test aloud to a student to give them um, that accommodation that's on their IEP. So being able to provide that to the student myself to take that off of an intervention specialist plate and also keep that kid like in the classroom so they don't feel like they're getting pulled out is something that I am very proud of as a, a facts teacher working with both diverse populations. And then another thing that you mentioned is that hands-on piece. That is so crucial. Being able to give them opportunities to get about and move, figuring out what to do and how students best learn for their needs and their own goals is so important for all students, not just special education students, right? So I think one of the most valuable things that we could do as educators in general is really spend that first week or so on community building and getting to know our students, because then you're going to be able, differentiation is going to come much easier after you know your students. If you don't know your students, how are you going to appropriately differentiate your materials? So, you know, I think that, again, that communication piece, that sharing, and then offering for that hands-on learning or whatever modality works best for them is so important. Yeah, I just, there's so, there's so many things out there and great thing that you could do is really look at your assignments. Great place to start if you already have a basis in family and consumer sciences is look at what you already have and say, okay, if, you know, Billy... Bob comes into my classroom from the resource room. Is this something that is even realistic for this student? Probably not, right? So I do a lot of work with paraprofessionals, um, especially in culinary. If we're making a cake from scratch, I am buying a box cake for my resource room students, and we're working on measurement skills versus not necessarily like convection versus conventional and those different things. I want them to be able to go to the grocery store and get something more realistic for them to make vocabulary that is appropriate for them. And that comes down to collaboration with those teachers. I talk to my resource room special education teacher and I say, 
hey, we're working on this assignment. I'm having the kids brainstorm different recipes. Here is the Target and the Walmart website. Can you have the kids compare uh, prices shopping for cake mix? You know, that's something more realistic that they're going to use in the real world, how to shop online or they do grocery trips in my district. So being able to tie things in like that. One of the most interesting things I got to collaborate on this year was in child development with our baby simulators. My poor <laughs> resource room teacher uh, we, instead of taking them home, they kind of uh, took care of their student throughout the day in that resource room when they weren't with me. And my resource room teacher ended up taking care of that baby because they were crying and they, oh, it was such an experience. Like it was so, it was funny and uh, it was sweet and it was real. And so, you know, you kind of, it would have been a hot mess if I didn't have that relationship with my resource room teacher. And we were able to adjust accordingly and communicate with their guardians accordingly to, you know, this big project. And that's the piece. That's the piece is communication. Uh, Communication is absolute key when it comes to this kind of stuff. Well, and I love you brought up icebreakers. Mm-hmm. in such a way you know you mentioned about communication and getting to relationships and getting to know your students so do you have a favorite icebreaker you're willing to share oh gosh I love icebreakers okay so one thing that I do with my college and careers course that's probably my favorite thing to do is value so we go around and we talk about like our values. So this year, what I did, because we were all in person, but we were messed up and partitioned and spaced out and all that kind of stuff. So we had a Google Doc and I had the kids just start listing like values. What to, And of course, you know, I explained values, kind of taught a little bit um, and did front loaded some information on what values are, modeled, gave examples. Again, I have a diverse population. So you got to kind of really you know, teach a little mini lesson before you dive into things often um, in family and consumer sciences, every single class, because you never know what is retained. So, and then we go around and we do values and then we just have an open conversation in the classroom. And I go through the list and I say, okay, family, how many of us in this room would also put family as one of their top five values? You would include family in your top five. And So they get a visual and they get to make these connections uh, with students in the classroom and myself of, oh, this person is like really values family too. This is awesome that we have these shared values. So that is the big one. And my second favorite one, I know you asked for one, but I love this one too, is a a who in the room. So again, that first week I give uh, like surveys, open-ended surveys where they share some information about themselves. And I use that and I create a Kahoot game, like who in the room has never broken a bone before? And I get, you know, list the four random students. So they get to learn about each other and kind of like guess who in the room has never broken a bone before. And it's just, it's fun. It's a really good time. So that's another one of my favorites for sure. I love that. So with your who in the room, that's actually kind of like the, the bingo game. Yeah. On a paper version. But you transferred it over into Kahoot using mm-hmm. technology. And that I love that idea. I absolutely love that. And that's something I, I'm going to carry on going, oh, I think I can take that and use that. So thank you for sharing that. And, th- and that's also the thing that I, I absolutely love about you know doing this podcast is that we're, brains- we're actively brainstorming at the same time. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're giving me ideas and, and like, oh, how I'm going to be able to take back to my classroom. 
So, oh gosh, how about for an assessment? This is something that I've done. And tell me how you think I can modify it best. Okay. Okay. So I have my students. I bring them into my foods classroom for the very first time. I I break them up into groups of four. So in my in my home my home kitchens, I have a home style kitchen, uh, six units in in my classroom, and so and we're only able to have up to twenty four students safely in in our class. So. As it's kind of an icebreaker, but also an assessment, because we've talked about the different measurements and the different tools that we have in the classroom, and then bringing them over into the culinary kitchens. They then are broken up into groups of four. They all go into their kitchen and go through all of the drawers and everything. They come back after, I don't know, five minutes of rummaging around, seeing where everything is. And then I make it a race where they then have to take everything out of the kitchen, put it on top of the counter. And then I put them in a line of four, you know, for each of their groups. And each of them are, they have to put one drawer away the correct way. So let's say Susie has the top drawer because there are four drawers. Susie has the top drawer. She has to run, find where these special items are for that particular drawer and put it away. And then she has to run back, tag, and then the second person goes and does the second drawer and does the same thing, tag, and and so forth. So they are getting, I see it as they're getting used to where the tools all belong, but also they're learning how to identify. Tell me, how how can I improve that? Okay, this sounds awesome, and I'm taking your idea, oh. too. <laughs> We're just sharing ideas here. Okay, so one of the things that I would maybe do, again, you should have, and if you don't, reach out to your special ed teacher. Prior to the start of the school year, you should have those IEP snapshots, whatever they look like, and know what students in your rooms have what needs. And you could do this either, uh, you probably don't know them that well to be able to group heterogeneously and kind of, you know, put your weaker students with stronger students because you don't know who those students are yet. But if you know your students with your, that are on IEPs that might really struggle, you could either leave some picture cues at that station. That's one of the things that I do at one of my kitchens is I um, have laminated on the cupboards um, some of your basic tools with the label on it so that they kind of have that visual support because that's extremely important for our SPED students. And I would also maybe position yourself at the kitchen that you're going to have the students coming to so that you can give them that support so they're having fun and not feeling anxiety that they're like a slower group that can't figure this out or they know that they're at this age at high school they often know they're self-aware of where they struggle where their weaknesses and where their strengths are so rather than feeling like oh god like <laughs> here we go I'm not fast I don't know what this is I can't read even what that word is for you know spatula and um, so positioning yourself in that kitchen so you can kind of like give little cues so that they're still having fun and learning, I think is something that I would do. And again, if you're going to purposely station students that way and group them that way, you could also do it where you maybe aren't taking as many tools out of the drawer. So, you know, maybe leave one or two things in there in the drawer so that they don't have as much to go through or, you know, something that you think might either be 
too easy. Uh, of course, they already know that one. So I'm going to leave forks and spoons in the drawer because they know what forks and spoons are. But maybe your hand mixers in that drawer as well. Keep that one out so that they can get familiar with ones that they don't necessarily know. And then if you have resource room students in there versus your inclusion students, that again is going to be where you come into that communication with your paraprofessionals station them at there. One thing that I do with my students in similar activities, and it helps me as a uh, teacher with inventory, uh, they work with the paras and they count and they'll like kind of organize and make things stack up neat and that kind of thing for organization skills, counting and math and that kind of thing. So they could always be doing a different type of task, but still similar, close enough in the realm where they're included in what everybody is doing. So uh, that's great. And thank you for breaking that down because that's only going to improve this activity. But also, it, I hope it's actually giving our listeners a visual in their heads as, as we're talking. Well, so let's kind of start wrapping up just a little bit from this summer. And we've had, we've had time to kind of digest, reflect, and I don't know, maybe sometimes, you know, try to, you know, talk ourselves into why do I love teaching? Why do I love teaching? <laughs> you know, kind of go back on that because this year has been hard. What has been the biggest takeaway from this past year for you as you've taken time during the summer? Patience. It's something that I lack. <laughs> But you really need, um, you know, especially in this year, it was such a strange year for myself to transition into something new. And again, I love special education. It's, it's a passion of mine. And knowing that I wasn't letting that go and, and still working with that population is really what kept me going a lot of times. But the biggest piece was just trying to, again, hold true to my value. It was hard to know that I was an expert in SPED, but not, I didn't feel like an expert in family and consumer sciences yet. And that was a struggle for me. So I have to be patient. And it's something that I'm still doing now of, you're going to get there. You're going to be an expert in facts, like you were an expert and you are an expert in special education. And those two are going to marry so beautifully that it's it's just going to help the students and my district and my community. Because that's another great thing of facts is we're working and engaging in the community in our districts. So patience, for sure. And just kind of being self-aware that not to lower expectations, but to have some realistic ones. Oh, it isn't, isn't that true? You know, being <laughs> se- well, being self-aware, but your expectations, I know, gosh, I have high expectations and it seems like every year at the end for the last couple of years, my students have just gone above and soared beyond what my expectations were. But this past year, Oh, it was definitely not something that students met (laughs) that expectation list. So, and I felt like a failure in that way. Thank you for for sharing that, you know, patience, self-awareness, and just patience is key because we're going to get back on track. We really Mm -hmm. are. How about, do you have a favorite summer read? Ooh, such a good question because I was so excited about my summer read uh, this vacation because I haven't done reading for myself in so long. It's uh, I read a lot, but it's all education-based. It's all something, I, I work a lot with our association for Ohio's New Educators. Love that group. They've kept me in this teaching profession. So I do a lot of 
academic style reading. This summer, I picked up a new Nicholas Sparks novel called The Return. Loved it. And I was just so happy to read for myself, for my enjoyment. And I'm a sucker for a good love story. So I, of course, I grabbed a Nicholas Sparks book and it was good. It was really good. So The Return, recommend it. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I, I'm writing that down. So I have to just kind of share my my guilty pleasure right now. <laughs> what is it? I want to hear it. Uh, so I, just like you, I love reading, but also at the same time, I have not read for enjoyment for quite a few years now. It's been mm-hmm. academic everything. And, I, and so trying to pick up a book that I will actually read for myself is been a it's been a challenge but it is the Bridgerton series <laughs> I and, need to get into that oh my goodness so yeah guilty pleasure um I can't remember the author's name because this is all just coming up very random yeah so I I did not read the first book, uh, Bridgerton, because I've already seen the Netflix series. And I'm like, and we all know that no book is ever the same as this, the the movie, the series, whatever you Mm -hmm. want it to be. It's, it's usually a letdown. So I, I don't, I'm just like, nope, I'm not even going to, not going to pick up that first book, but I'm, I'm now reading the second book and that's like the Viscount and, and me or something like that. And so far it's so good. Yeah. Is it a page turner? (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) What is, do you have a favorite technology productivity tool? Oh my, um, I will say, Okay. I, I don't know if it's hundred percent my favorite, but again, for students, not necessarily myself, I started using Flipgrid again, COVID times. And uh, if there are any educators out there, I'm familiar with Flipgrid again, uh, Google it and find it on there. I think you get, there's an app on your phone too, because I have an app on my phone. You can post some questions and students upload videos of themselves and other students can respond to it with a video or comments and things like that. And just like a video feed for the student. And I had my culinary class with some of the resource room students in that, in that class. And I just loved their videos. The question I posed was something along the lines of, um, you know, it was an icebreaker thing, introducing yourself, uh, what your favorite food is, and what you would like most like to make in the class or something along those lines. And, oh, I just love the responses. And they really engaged in it as far as, you know, interacting with each other and commenting on each other's posts or liking them and that kind of thing. So it kind of touched on kind of a style that they like to do on, you know, Instagram and TikTok and all that, but an educational piece and icebreaker getting to know you. And oh my Lanta, the responses I got from my resource room students, like the very next day I ran to this bed teacher. I'm like, oh my gosh, you have to get on Flipgrid and see so-and-so's reaction or a post that they made. Oh, it was, it was awesome. So I love that. It's just something easy. And again, differentiating, offering so many different modalities for our students to be able to, you know, really show what they know versus just writing or multiple choice, Uh, you know, give them videos, give them projects, give them choices um, and give them different opportunities to highlight uh, themselves. So yeah, that was a good one. I, I love Flipgrid. A lot of my students this last year despised Flipgrid. <laughs> they probably got sick of it after a while. Yeah, they did. But at the same time, you know, you're you're talking about 
your the diverse needs. They loved it. And they felt like they were part of that TikTok world because I was telling everybody, I'm like, you're creating a TikTok video, but within Flipgrid, we can, we can do this. Come on. We can do fun things because we were at a distance from the very start of school up until April. So and then going back into that that hybrid and full and full face model that I'm looking forward to this next year being able to still incorporate Flipgrid, but it's just going to look a little different. So yeah. I, yeah, it's been fun. Well, Rachel, this has been a joy talking with you. I know you've already shouted out to we both have to Anna yeah. Hall and <laughs> and to the Ohio uh, State. But do you have any other shout outs or would you like to do any special mentions? Um, let me think here. No, I, again, would just kind of like to shout out to, as I mentioned, I am very active in the association, Ohio Education Association, it, specifically my Ohio student educators group. It's just a work group, kind of. Um, it's a group within OEA uh, that supports educators in their first 10 years, year zero through 10. And I found them in my third year of teaching, I was ready to call it quits. I mean, you know, educators out there, we get it, right? It's not an easy job. I think it's one of the toughest, yet most rewarding jobs in the entire world. Um, But I was ready to be done. There was so much going on. And I just happened to find them at a social, at a local uh, bar restaurant uh, near Kent State University. And I met these educators, um, Marissa Platten, I'm going to name you because you're amazing and I love you. And I heard their stories and just listened to their experiences. And I was able to connect. Same thing with Anna. Like I just, just someone that I could easily connect with and that valued relationships. And it instantly just turned into a support system. And so I want to shout out to Ohio's new educators for keeping me into the teaching profession and for always being there as a network and a support and offering me so many different opportunities. So thanks to one. Oh, that's fantastic. And again, if you are a new educator within that that 10-year scope, or maybe you've been in it for 20 years and you're looking for new and innovative ways, or you just need to collaborate, um, brainstorm, thinking out loud please always feel free, reach out to either Rachel, myself, or anybody within, you know, the, the Connect FCS Ed podcast realm. We are a resource. We're better together. And that is my mission when it comes to this podcast. And that is to continue our own professional growth, but also to connect one another. So thanks for joining. And I'm looking forward to this school year. So thank you so much, Rachel. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited to be able to talk to you and share my story. Thank you. Barbara Scully from the Connect FCS Ed podcast presents a fresh take on recruitment and support for today's modern home economics educators in the family and consumer sciences, FCS Classroom, sharing insightful stories, strategies, and resources in a fun and sustainable and practical way. Each episode focuses on a different aspect of modern home economics. From community engagement, leadership, classroom management, to lessons and more, Each episode brings a different perspective, offering expert professional development, interviews from a collaborative worldwide FCS community, with the hope that it will inspire and empower you to make informed decisions. Together, we are better at leading the way to student success with FCS.